everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Jillian Rowe. Hello. We also have Will Button. Hello, everyone. We have Jonathan. I'm sorry, Jonathan. It's been a long week, and I can't remember your last name. <laughs> Jonathan Hall. Hall, that's right. I knew that. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and this week we're talking to Alex, is it Faisal? Faisley. Faisley. Awesome. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Let us know who you are and why you're famous. <laughs> For sure. So I'm Alex Feisley. I'm the founder and CEO of Gravital. And we've started a project called NetMaker for mesh VPN networking using WireGuard. So I put out a lot of fun articles about things to do with that. And one of the areas we're focused on specifically is on cross-cloud networking with Kubernetes, which uh, is what we're here to talk about. Awesome. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Now, you use like eight buzzwords in those four words. <laughs> so do you want to just uh, give us a rundown of what you mean by cross-cloud networking in Kubernetes? For sure. Yeah. So I guess to try to put it as non-buzzwordy as possible, basically, we have a platform to connect machines across different networks. So you've got machines in location A, B, C, wherever. You just want them to be able to talk to each other. So our platform enables that. Um, and it does so with strong encryption and dynamically creating links so that you don't have to think about it a lot. It's something that maybe typically you'd have a network engineer come in and do and do a lot of setup for. But our thing is kind of you deploy this agent in a bunch of different locations and then everything's all able to talk to each other, which makes you able to do a lot of fun and interesting patterns. Cool. So I'm wondering, what does that look like from like from the user's perspective? Does that look like kind of one of these Amazon deals where I log in and I already get something that's kind of location centric. So like if I log in on Amazon when I'm in the US, I get the US store. And if I log in when I'm in Europe, I get like it, it knows where I am and it sort of directs me to that site. Or is it all like the user just goes to one place and they have no idea they might be on a pod that's from AWS and maybe Google Cloud and they just don't know. Yeah, so we are a we're not a SaaS company. We have a self hosted hub software. So basically, you'll set up the platform for your business. When you log into it, you'll have the ability to create networks, and you'll label those networks for different use cases. So let's say I have a hybrid cloud environment between DigitalOcean and some on-prem data center. So uh, and let's say I'm connecting Kubernetes machines between those. So I'll call it like, like KubeNet or something or whatever you want to call it. 
And then you'll deploy these agents on your machines between the two environments, and they'll all just mesh together and connect together. So that's the general idea. It, so the location is really where you make the location. You could deploy that server wherever you want. The machines could live wherever you want them to live. So, you know, we're not connecting from our platform into other people's locations. It's really where you decide to put things. So then whenever I build out my network, do you still retain the concept of like a primary data center and a failover data center? So I would use AWS as my primary and then DigitalOcean as my backup and then schedule resources there accordingly? Or is it kind of dynamic across the two with just the networking layer in between? Yeah, so I guess that depends on if we're talking about you know, implementing the cross-cloud Kubernetes pattern, which is what the, the article is about, or if we're talking about deploying NetMaker, which is what enables the networking between those locations. So NetMaker as a platform is really just a thing that enables the cross-cloud pa- pla- cross uh, computing. So it enables the pattern of disaster recovery and failover data centers. But as far as actually implementing that pattern, that would be more on how you want to set that up. So we basically say, let's say you have like two data centers and a cloud environment. We can tie all those environments together over a single virtual network. Uh, You deploy your nodes into those environments. And then you're actually going to label which nodes are going to be primary and failover. And then it'll just kind of, the networking takes place underneath that. But yeah, just when things fail, the data center goes down. You know, our, the pattern we enabled based on the tutorial you guys read was more about how, you know, it'll just dynamically move workloads over. All right, on. Hmm. So let's go, like, who's the ideal candidate for this? Because it's it's a pretty big undertaking, even with the the tools that you're implementing and building to make it easier. I think it's it feels like a pretty big undertaking to do across multiple clouds. So who do you think best is best served by this? Yeah, so we target a couple of particular use cases and you know, it makes it a little bit more difficult to say because it is a general use virtual networking platform. So while we we target a couple specific use cases, you can use it for a lot of different stuff. So for instance, a lot of people using the open source project are just using it for stuff like home networking. So they'll have like virtual machines in the cloud, they'll have stuff running in their houses and they'll connect the networks between the two. So that's like, you know, kind of like if you're a single person, that's like a use case for you. Uh, for small businesses, there's more of a use case around. So think about if you're an MSP or you're someone who works with a lot of vendors, one of the other use cases we have is connecting between one person's company resources and another person's company's resources where you're able to create virtual links between the two. So then mm. when we get into the larger scale of the multi-cloud networking stuff, that's when we talk about larger businesses. So a primary use case we're targeting there is edge cloud computing. So for instance, let's say you are an enterprise and you have a lot of branches or offices or retail locations. This is a pattern we've seen some companies implement. For instance, there's a pretty high profile use case that you can watch about um, Chick-fil-A and how they implemented their Kubernetes clusters, where actually every Chick-fil-A you go to has a Kubernetes cluster running there, and they're all (laughs) running a certain pattern to run applications between them. So we enable a similar pattern, but with instead of one cluster per location, 
you're running one total cluster with different nodes in each location, and they're connected over this virtual network. So edge computing is one we're, we're focused on. And then hybrid cloud would be the other, where maybe you've got a database that's stuck in some legacy server on-prem, but you've migrated applications to the cloud, and then you need to create virtual links back to you know that, that data center application. Right on. So I'm really curious, like how do people know that they need a solution like this? Like what kind of problems would they hit before they put their hands up and say, okay, we got to fix this. What do we do when they come presumably and talk to you? Uh, you know, like what, you know, what kind of problems do they face? What sort of infrastructure are they running? Give me all the gory details. Yeah. And again, it, we've got a pretty wide base of, of use cases that people are trying to solve. So in general, it comes down to people who are maybe not networking engineers. They're more on the application side or the DevOps side. And they're saying themselves, okay, I have applications running over here. They need to talk to applications over here. Or I need remote access to this location from this other location. And they're just looking into like, how do I set that up? And there are other things that do it. Like there, there are, there are other projects out there that accomplish similar goals for cross environment networking. Where, where we come in differently is a lot of people are now looking at WireGuard as a tool for doing this. It's like the low level tunneling tool we use. And people are wanting to use that to create these connections because it is much, much faster than stuff that's previously been out there. But there's not a lot of tooling to enable these sort of patterns with WireGuard. So we're kind of one of the first that allows you to set up these connections over this new tunneling technology. So who are who are the like competitors? And I don't say that to advertise for them, but I'm, I'm curious, <laughs> like d- just to help put it in a mental space, what class of what other types of products are you are you competing with or similar to so that I can maybe latch onto something I'm familiar with? Right. So I'll name one that you're probably more familiar one with and then one that's less familiar, but more similar. So OpenVPN would be one yeah. if you're familiar with them. So a lot of people we get are migrating from OpenVPN. Um, it's a lot clunkier. It's hard to implement. And, you know, their, their licensing model does not help a lot of people. So we get users from them for that reason. But a lot of similar use cases with OpenVPN. Another one people use is Zero Tier. So similar to there, Zero Tier is just like a lot slower. So if you're familiar with those use cases, um, Zero Tier people would be using this as well. And then the last one, which is a lot more similar, would be TailScale. So I'm not sure if you've looked into them at all. But yeah, they are, they are also going on top of WireGuard. The difference being they are a SaaS company. So basically, you're routing your traffic using their servers as opposed to your own. And the other difference being they use a user space version of the tunneling, which I know gets back to really low level stuff, but it's a lot um, slower, basically. So I don't know, were, were any of those more familiar to you? I think OpenVPN is probably the one people are most familiar yeah, with. Definitely. No, actually, when you started describing this earlier, one thing came to mind, and I'm, I'm going to mention a technology that I, I don't even know if it's still being developed. I'm curious to know if you've heard of it, because we used it at a company I worked at 10 years ago. It's an open source VPN tool called Tink, T-I-N-C. Yes. yes. How does this relate to that, or how does it compare? Yeah, that would be another similar use case. Um, okay. And I guess what I get at generally is there are, like Tink, OpenVPN, StrongSwan, there's technologies that came out like 10, 15, 20 years ago that were kind of iterated on over time. 
the important note is really this new technology came out called WireGuard, which is really low level. And a lot of people don't look into it too much, but it creates these really, really fast tunnels. And the only way I can put it is it's not really an incremental improvement in how VPNs can function. It's like the difference between you're using a horse to get around and you get a car to get around. So you talk to people about like use cases and they'll be like, okay, why would I want a car? We've already got horses. Sure, it's faster, but like, what's really the difference? But there's, there's the way it does these improvements, even though a horse and a car have very similar use cases are pretty fundamental. So our, our bet and a lot of other people's feeling is that WireGuard is going to replace the functionality in a lot of how we do virtual networking. So there's no ecosystem around it, but it's like WireGuard's like the engine for cars. And we're building a car around that engine to create these connections between environments. And a lot of these older ones are kind of, they're still using horses and carts to, to bring stuff back and forth. <laughs> nice, nice analogy. So you mentioned, and I was looking at the website for both WireGuard and I was looking at your article, but it, lo- it looks like these are both open source tools. I'm assuming there's a closed source mm-hmm. component or you provide support as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just what could you tell me about the, the open sourceness of these tools? Yeah, for sure. So WireGuard is, you know, as open source as you can get. It's in the Linux kernel now. So basically okay. all Linux distributions going forward are eventually going to have this in it. So you can run these tunnels by default. And then our platform is something that enables mesh networking with these tunnels, which is something that's kind of complicated to set up in a lot of environments. So yeah, it's it's very open source. Uh, our tool is also completely open. You can download all the source code, you can view it. Our license is the uh, SSPL license, which is kind of like the Mongo license or Elasticsearch. So you can completely self-host it and use it for your own uses as opposed to like there's there's no closed source components that you can't use basically okay nice and then our model is basically subscription based so you can choose to pay for support similar to canonical or red hat and you know we'll, mm-hmm. we'll help you out with more difficult use cases because it is despite all the automation and extra tooling we put in there it can still be pretty complicated especially when you get into uh, the stuff we were talking about like with kubernetes where you're doing you know, the higher level stuff, like the automation between environments and setting up things in those scenarios. Mm-hmm. When I first looked at the article, I, mean, I was just reading the first two paragraphs and, and I, I felt like, oh my gosh, this is heavy stuff. But <laughs> 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 I've been using Kubernetes for a while and you start doing multiple uh, clusters. And I, I mean, I, before I even read your 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 solution i was thinking like okay how are they solving this problem my mind starts with gears start going how are we solving this problem what are the possible scenarios so i'm really glad to see uh, sort of a recipe to uh, to to tackle this because it's it's not an obvious uh there's not an obvious solution is there for for most of this stuff no definitely and if you want to talk more about kubernetes generally and get off of the really low level networking stuff <laughs> i think so a big reason for this project was enabling these Kubernetes use cases. And I, th- I think the, the fundamental thing to think about there is basically today, and I did a lot of Kubernetes deployments before starting this project, so I was very familiar with this. Anytime you're deploying Kubernetes, you deploy it into a subnet. And a subnet is kind of like a networking box. And those boxes either exist in a data center region or like a cloud region. 
So you put your Kubernetes cluster into a box on a set of servers that exist in a physical location, which when you think about Kubernetes is kind of counter to the whole reason for Kubernetes. Like Kubernetes is about distributed computing. You are able to run many nodes and run applications between those nodes. And yet we take all those distributed nodes and stick them in a physical location and say, this is our distributed computing solution. It lives right here. So <laughs> what I realized is... You're not supposed to call us out like that. <laughs> <laughs> We're all getting really uncomfortable right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I tell my clients. It's distributed. It's highly valuable. I throw all the in there. Oh, no. It looks like Alex is having bandwidth problems. Is he going to drop off the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I love Kubernetes. I love it a lot. And the the one thing I realized, like the, the only limitation there for putting it into that box is that networking subnet. So basically, our approach is instead of deploying it into a physically constructed or even virtually constructed subnet inside of a cloud region, you use this mesh VPN, which is basically, you can think about it like a virtual subnet that like spans different environments. And then the second you do that, your cluster is no longer limited to just that one physical location. It can now live wherever. Yeah. So I would imagine that this the kind of a solution would come in handy for, let's say that one company acquires another and they use separate clouds and they want to start integrating your applications. I could see that as a use case there. How would you set things up differently in that case as opposed to sort of having a mirrored setup in the clouds as a kind of a failover? How would we set up the, the networking between two environments? Yeah, do you just you just open the gate and then just mm-hmm. make them send their requests over the VPN as opposed to over, I guess, the open internet? Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much it, is you deploy this agent in location A, you deploy it in location B, and then you route your requests to the new virtual IP that's that's there. And we do some other interesting patterns too. So a mesh is like each node in the network has to be in this mesh network. Uh, but we also do things like ingress and egress gateways, which, you know, is kind of a Kubernetes concept too. But in general, you could do things like site to site where it's like, Let's say you acquire a company, they have a data center and it's an office. Uh, you deploy one virtual machine in there that acts as an egress gateway, and then you can just access all the services in that office space without having to change any networking on all the other stuff. So that that would be one approach to doing that as well. So I'm wondering, and uh, keep in mind, I'm really bad at networking and I avoided it pretty much all costs. But say I have something like, a really common scenario for me is that I'll have different Kubernetes clusters and they're in different regions and they need to access different uh, AWS EFS storage. And on AWS, the EFS is kind of it's linked to a region and to, uh, you know, and then you create your availability zones within subnets. And traditionally, it's been very tricky to do the like cross region availability. Mm-hmm. Would this kind of fix that problem for me? And if it does, yeah. maybe we can move on to the me and my problems portion of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's actually another use case that we support is you run most of your stuff in maybe it's cloud A and then cloud B is AWS. You have a box there that has access to those AWS resources you need access to from cloud A. So then you route the requests over 
and you're able to access AWS resources from your other cloud, which is a pretty cool thing. Uh, and then beyond that, you mentioned availability zones. So one problem can be just cross zone networking within a single cloud, which is another thing you can do. You know, you've got separate VPCs. You kind of create one giant virtual VPC, <laughs> a VVPC. Uh, and then all of your stuff is again able to communicate, even though they're all in different zones. That is very cool because I know I tried some of the solutions on AWS, especially with the EFS storage, and I could never really figure it out. So now I'm just like, no, I'm not doing that, which is how I solved that problem. <laughs> but maybe now I have an actual solution. Your article talks about using microcates specifically. And in fact, it, mm-hmm. in the conclusion section, it says enabling these patterns requires tools like microcates. Mm-hmm. Uh, how strictly is that true? I mean, can you do this with, with vanilla Kubernetes or can you do it with EKS or, or GKE? Or does it really need uh, microcates to do this? Right. So one limitation on the Kubernetes side is the brain, which is at CD. And this is one area where if we talk about distributed Kubernetes, it actually is a problem to not be in the same physical location. And it's a reason a lot of people won't implement this cross-cloud pattern today, uh, because etcd is very latency tolerant, meaning if you've got one of my master nodes in cloud A and one in cloud B, if the latency is too high, your cluster won't function correctly. Mm-hmm. So what microcase does, and you can do this with K3S as well, uh, they use their own database called DQLite. So that actually eliminates the latency requirement that etcd has. Uh, you can still enable these patterns with etcd. It's just your brain then is limited to one region and then your mm-hmm. nodes go in other regions. So that's one reason for using microcates. The other is they have this really cool concept where basically every node in your network at, or every node in your cluster acts as both a master and a worker node. So basically, any time that one of those nodes dies, another node will pick up the slack. So you don't have to be as concerned with how you design, you know, like, oh, this is the subnet for my master nodes, it's the one for worker nodes, I have three here for IVA. You just deploy like five, 10, however many nodes, and it kind of figures it out for you what is going to, to control the cluster. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going? Etc. 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 I've put together the curriculum, and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. So if you want to go to the effort of trying to get DQ Light to work. I don't even know if it's even possible, but theoretically, if you could get that to work with GKE or something, then then maybe you could make it happen, it sounds like. But that's probably more work than anybody should reasonably want to do. <laughs> no, I would, I would not recommend that. Yeah. Some distributions are pretty good about switching out that backing database. So, for instance, yeah. K3S, you can do a lot of stuff, but... I, w- I especially would not do it with a cloud provider Fair enough. distribution. That does sort of imply a, a certain maybe tipping point where you know, if you're a small startup and you're just using 
a cloud provider, AWS or Google or whatever, because it's easy, then this probably isn't for you. At what point, I mean, of course, your mileage will vary and it depends on business requirements and so on and so forth. But what what criteria should people start to look at or, or consider that it makes sense to start switching to their own microcates and and this solution, you know, when when does that start to make sense? If that question makes sense, yeah, definitely. And that completely depends on you know the use cases that that company is dealing with. So there are startups that do require these sorts of things. I would say immediately right off the bat, probably about fifty percent of people are going to need this because like fifty percent of people, at least, or maybe more even, are all in on one cloud and they're never going to leave it. If that's who you are and you say, everything we run is on AWS, we use all the AWS tooling to do everything, you probably don't have a strong reason to use this. I, I could make some up, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's not really meant for you. It's meant for those other people who, for one reason or another, have to run their compute in different locations. So you know, uh, there are some startups, for instance, startups doing things like machine learning at the edge or like... IoT type things where immediately they have to run stuff off cloud. That's immediately when they start needing this stuff. When you say, oh, I need to run, and let's think of a really small one. I need to run these Raspberry Pis in these different locations and, and I need to get information off of them. So that's like a, that's a pretty strong use case where you start looking into this kind of pattern. And, um, it's one where microcates plus NetMaker makes a lot of sense because basically you're deploying the same thing to every environment and then you're able to control it all centrally as opposed to, you know, having push out updates to each node or cluster individually. Good. Yeah, that's really interesting because immediately like my brain went in the opposite direction where I was thinking, why on earth would you need something like this? Because most of the people that I work with, they have data compliance, but on the other side, like the data has to stay within a certain physical location or within a country, usually because it's medical data and we're all very, very paranoid. But yeah, I guess if you have, especially if you have this kind of IoT world where you have, you know, stuff all over the place, then you have to make sure that everything can kind of talk to each other and uh, talk to each other very quickly. Do you get any people doing medical devices? Like I know this was an issue with uh, somebody was designing something for diabetes for teenagers to try to get like uh, risk factors because teenagers are not always the most compliant of patients. And, but one of the issues what? with that was that like, you really had to be able to do that. Not, right? you really I'm had diabetic. To be able to I'm not the most compliant of patients. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not the most compliant of anything. So I shouldn't be talking, but I, I remember that was like an issue with this is that how do we take care of these kind of compliance issues where you have to have this data in real time. And I mean, if, if something for some reason dropped off, right? Like say you have some kid with a, uh, you know, the, the blood sugar meter thing. And like, and that data should be getting pushed to say like, hey, they're having a problem. Their blood sugar is low or, um, you know, they went to McDonald's with their friends and drank a bunch of soda or something like that. And somehow that data drops off, you know, so would something like this fix that kind of problem? Yeah, and I'm, I'm trying to think kind of about this compliance? a little more. So I'm not too familiar with a lot of those compliance rules and how data is allowed to move. So maybe if you could answer a question for me about that, which would be, so the data has to be in a physical location. Can you still run requests to that location from another geographic region to get like the metadata you need or run, like maybe you have an API in front of that data and pull information out? Or is it really like 
everything has to live in that location. Usually it's everything has to live in that location. Like a lot of hospitals have that, those kind of compliance rules where the data has to sit in the data center and you can't have, I mean, I suppose you could have, you can have outside services talking to it, but you can't have like the data going out. So I couldn't like ping a service and say, give me this patient data and then have it going out. But like something like that would be completely different if you have any kind of medical device, because if it's a if it's like a personal medical device, then those kind of data compliance rules come become completely different. Hmm. Okay. yeah, I'm not too familiar with a lot of those rules and how that works. Um, I would say in general, one of the use cases is for either accessing data at a diverse location or, or disparate location or running compute at that location. So I guess in either case, you could either access that remote data from some central location or other location, or you could update the application. So this would be more the microcates thing. Let's say you've got a microcates network with the nodes running in different, let's say it's different medical offices. Um, you could push out applications to those different nodes without actually grabbing the data. So maybe that's a use case. Again, I'm not too familiar with with how that process looks in, in real time, but yeah, just kind of kind of brainstorming. Well, that could be your next uh, your next study. I know that was a big issue. Uh, I don't know a while ago where people were trying to do medical research in the field and they were having you know like iPads or whatever. And this was even before the iPads were especially good at thinking. But even with some of that, you still have to have at least some level of real time data transmission between the devices. Because again, if you've got somebody who's like about to have a heart attack or something, you need to be able to identify them in real time. So then that would be kind of a good use case for these networks being able to talk to each other. Yeah. And that's something in IoT that's kind of not really done too much today is actually thinking about the like protecting the networking between all these devices. Oh, no. Everybody always thinks about security first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Everybody. Always. Yeah. Those are the words that come to mind for me, too. (laughs) <laughs> Your IT department does not have a spreadsheet of everybody's passwords hanging out somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in another sense, this can be a really easy way to add a layer of security over an existing network. So if you're one of those people who kind of just like, all right, I'm going to connect all my stuff. And that's good to go. They're all able to talk. Maybe that's running over public networks and you've got IoT devices that are using the public network to communicate with each other. Instead, just deploy this agent on them. Now they're all talking over a private network. So it can even be, you know, throwing another buzzword, kind of creating more of like a zero trust thing where you know which devices have access to which other devices exactly. Yeah, that's cool because you'd have to have that with any kind of like HIPAA compliant data or any of the other kind of uh, compliance. You can't just have that data floating around. Yeah, it's definitely something we're looking to, to focus more on. You know, we are we are more on like the Linux server side of things right now. We're expanding our uh, list of devices we support. So we're actually pushing out a release tomorrow where we're getting Windows and Mac support, and then we'll be able to run on a lot of different things. Things like uh, single board computers and stuff are probably a ways off, though. I think this sounds really cool, but I don't think I'm likely to use it for a long time. So I don't know what other questions to ask right now. I'm glad I know about it now. (laughs) Yeah, well, one thing to your point, Jonathan, is that... 
in a lot of cases, like I'll start looking at a solution like this before I need it, right? When I start feeling some of the pain. So how painful should it get before I'm really saying that this is a solution that I need, you know, as opposed to just being interested or or watching to see where this goes? Yeah. And again, I think that depends on the use case. I think if we're talking about Kubernetes specifically, and this is more with like the larger businesses and stuff. But a lot of the pain points I was seeing with implementations at larger businesses is they have like 10 different separately networked environments. And the solution is always completely replicate your Kubernetes cluster in each environment and push out applications <laughs> to it. That is yep. very painful, uh, especially when you're running with like a distribution, for instance, like o- OpenShift, where you're running like like multiple dozens of cores of compute, you've got infrastructure nodes that have like 60 gigs plus of RAM. And it's a lot of compute to be using to do these things. And at the same time, it's a lot of work because you have to like replicate between different environments. So I would say for larger businesses, it's more about, I would be thinking about it during the planning phase when you're like, okay, we need We're going to roll out Kubernetes for this new set of applications or our strategy for 2022 is to use Kubernetes in these environments. And then you look into the architecture and how it actually works. And you're like, okay, so based on the way that we deploy Kubernetes right now, we're going to have to deploy like two or three dozen clusters and have a mechanism for managing applications and managing infrastructure between all of them. In those cases, something like this becomes extremely valuable where either you're able to just say, all right, we're going to have one cluster and deploy nodes in different environments, or you have multiple clusters, but at least you have a mesh network between all of them where you're able to access services between those environments. This may be a really silly question, but how does this fit into something like Rancher where you can have sort of Rancher as, well, usually it's deployed on a Kubernetes cluster, but then it can also go and watch your other clusters. Yeah. Is that in any way related to this or no? For sure. I would say it's more of an alternative or a a supplement to those uh, types of solutions. So then you get into like the multi-cluster model and there's a lot of tools out there for multi-cluster management. IBM has one, Rancher has one, Red Hat has one. And they're all about like, you deploy a bunch of different clusters and then you're able to roll out applications between them. So ours is more of just handling it at a lower level and saying, why would we replicate all this infrastructure and have to have a tool to manage it all separately? as opposed to just deploying one cluster and managing it all centrally. Do you have any like really cool client stories where you got to come in and that you can tell us about that you got to come in and like (laughs) save the day by having, you know, this one centralized infrastructure and they were pulling their hair out before that? (laughs) So we do have, we're still pretty early. You know, the startup started in March. So we're, we're pretty early in the game. We do have people rolling out the microcates approach. So there's some interesting use cases for instance, we've got a couple people using it to deploy a uh, blockchain. So you've thrown in another buzzword on top of that. So you have a mesh network to deploy microcates nodes in different locations, and then you're running a blockchain on top of those. So that's a, that's a real interesting one that I like a lot. Uh, we got another guy who was managing uh, CDNs for a bunch of different clients, and he didn't know how to manage it between like 10 or 20 different clients. And this became a way where it's like, all right, I now have my central way to manage things between all these different clients. 
So yeah, we, we get a lot of, it's, it's nice because a lot of people don't think about, you know, virtual networking too much. They're, they're more based on the application side, but for people who do dig into the sort of lower level stuff, uh, they run into these problems and then, you know, we, we end up getting a couple people every week who are just showing up in our, uh, in our chat and are like, Hey, I'm, I'm so thankful for this because I had no idea how to solve this problem before. Did you wear a cape? <laughs> Did I wear a cape? <laughs> when you saved the day. Oh, <laughs> uh, I have not worn a cape yet, but I'll consider investing. Halloween is coming up. Uh, that's that's true. What are the prospects of getting some of this functionality into some you know, rolled into existing Kubernetes distributions? I mean, it would be great if you could just install, say, OpenShift or whatever random uh, distribution, mm-hmm. and it has this capability built in. So we're still pretty early, and these are things probably I can't talk about as much, but those are <laughs> things we're discussing with some people. They are. It is a very interesting prospect that. If you, that's really where a lot of the value comes is if you were to integrate this at the lower level of a Kubernetes distribution or the way a cloud provider rolls out Kubernetes or the way that an operating system manages networking between different virtual machines. So we're having those types of conversations that are moving along. But yeah, that's, I think, potentially even more interesting than, you know, sort of end user implementations is like getting it in place earlier on in the process where you're just deploying these sorts of services and suddenly network limitations are no longer existent because when you deploy them they're just connected to the things that need to be connected cool i like i like a a question with an answer that can't be answered because it's secret (laughs) (laughs) so let me ask about a potential use case one that this has actually come up for me many, many times over the years, specifically whenever you're you're integrating with partners or one company acquires another company or you, you integrate over VPN with your customers. Like one of the challenges there is whenever both sides of the VPN connection have either the same or overlapping subnets. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I need to build a VPN with a particular client, but they're using the same subnet that I am, that always creates problems with the VPN. Is this something that would help make that less of a network re-architecture issue? Right. So one thing you could do for that is say you're, you've got that situation. You've got two networks that are 192.168.something.something and site A and site B. So one approach to that would be using network NetMaker to deploy a virtual network, which essentially acts as a subnet. And you deploy that on all the machines in location B, and that just creates a new subnet called like 10.11.0.0 or something. So then you're able to create that same connection, but it's just a new virtual interface added on top. Oh, right on. So you just use NetMaker to create a new virtual network over the top of the existing network. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, and that's right actually, so those overlapping ciders gets into a limitation with Kubernetes right now, where, and this happens a lot with multi-cluster networking, a lot of clusters when you deploy them, they have a defined subnet that things exist on. And then when you try to network between them, it's like, oh, now I've got the same ciders, I'm not quite sure what to do that. So yeah, it can definitely help in those sorts of situations. Yeah, especially whenever you get into scenarios where someone was like, let's just make everything class A's. <laughs> yeah, it definitely, in a way, it makes it a lot harder to talk about because 
of how many interesting things you can do with networking with it. And I, I always have a hard time focusing on the most specific and like higher level use cases because like, oh, you can create gateways, and this, and that. Right. Oh, you guys lose me. Nope. Just for a second. Uh, okay. <laughs> my, my thing just froze. But yeah, yeah, I, I always find it fun to talk about. That's cool. That's super cool. Well, is there anything else we should talk about here? Anything else you're working on or want to bring up? Right. I guess I just say we have a release coming out tomorrow. It's got some cool new features to it. So we're implementing relay servers, which gives some other cool functionality, as well as native Mac and Windows support so that you can mesh in different types of devices. And I think people should be looking out for some more Kubernetes integrations we've put in the roadmap for the next, I'd say, month or so. So we're looking at doing similar stuff that you've seen with microcates and K3S, but for distributions that are like, for instance, cloud provider distributions. And OpenShift is a big one we want to get going as well, where basically we're able to deploy edge nodes with OpenShift. So that's some good stuff to, to look look out for. Cool. Nice. Really cool. All right. Well, before we go to picks, if people want to connect with you, ask questions, dive into this stuff, how do they get a hold of you? For sure. So all of our information is listed on the site and the GitHub. So it's gravitl.com, G-R-A-V-I-T-L.com. We've got a Discord channel where we're helping people all the time. Uh, that's linked in the GitHub. So if you search Gravitl Netmaker or WireGuard Netmaker, it should come up or just reach out to info at gravitl.com. Would you repeat that? Gr- gravitl.com? Like gravity, but with A-L? G-R-A-V-I-T-L. Uh, oh, there's no A. Okay. No. My brain inserted an A that my ear didn't hear. Got it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do our picks. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Will, do you want to start us off with picks? I would love to start us off. 
So a while back, I read a Stephen King book called The Institution that was about, it was about this government program that kidnapped kids and used them for what's called remote viewing. So basically you do this telekinesis clairvoyance thing to spy on remote targets and it was a super entertaining book, but it actually led me to the fact that that was based on some true stuff, that there were actually some studies done back in the seventies to explore that. And I read the I read this book and this is this is one of my picks. The book's called Mind Reach by Russell Targ and Harold Puthoff, who were two of the researchers that led a lot of this research on it. And um but the reason I'm making this pick is not for the the remote viewing stuff, but because this book written in the 70s, you know, whenever it first came out, parapsychology and that type of stuff was thought to be just a hoax or magic tricks and stuff like that. And so these guys were doing actual legitimate documented scientific research on it, but they had a lot of trouble getting their research papers taken seriously. And so the interesting point of this is whenever he talks about about halfway through the book, he talks about the way that people discredit information, you know, that at first they just don't believe and then they'll they'll create like anti campaigns or create allegations against it that aren't necessarily based in truth. But like the whole process there was it kind of hit a nerve close to home because I don't know if any of y'all have seen the news in like the last 18 months or so, but there's just some like different stories out in the media. And I think that's the real takeaway of the book is the way that he addressed how his research was being targeted is very similar to the the flood of media stories that we see today. And I found it helpful to put that in perspective and use that as like a framework to analyze different things that I see on the news or online and uh, determine whether that's something that's, you know, based on fact or based on opinion or is an attempt to to cast the light somewhere else. So my pick is a book called Mind Reach by Russell Targ, Harold Putoff. Really, really cool. Even if you're not in to the the psychic ability research aspect of it, it was cool just to see the way that they addressed bad publicity and incorrect media. And then my follow-up pick is over on my YouTube channel, DevOps for Developers. I've been adding to this playlist of day in the life of DevOps engineers where I've just been making videos about real things that I do in DevOps. And I, it's, it's been pretty helpful and I've gotten a lot of great feedback on it because a lot of people who are just getting started in DevOps are like, what do you do? And anytime you try to ask somebody what they do in DevOps, you know, it, it le it's hard to get a concrete answer. So I thought one of the best ways to address that was just to throw on the camera and say, hey, here's this problem I'm working on. Here's why I have to be working on it. And here's what I'm doing to address it. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes and check that out. Awesome. Jonathan, what are your picks? My pick is a book I just finished reading. It's a graphic novel. I've never read graphic novels in my life, but I found one about that's relevant to my work. It's called Commitment, a novel about managing project risk. It's by Olav Massen. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Of course, I'll put a link in the show notes. But it's about, it's the story. It's, it's like one of those sort of business 
I don't know, uh, like made up stories about a business, kind of like the Phoenix Project or something like that, but it's about project management. And there's one lesson in the book that is actually quite relevant to today's topic for me. And that is the concept of uh, a knowledge option, which is a way to, to reduce the risk of investing a lot of time learning something that you may not use. And so this this uh, this talk today with Alex has been a great example of that. I have I have now this knowledge option in my pocket about how to do cross cloud Kubernetes networking. And if I ever need to exercise that option, now I can go and, and finish the investigation necessary to do that. But I haven't spent six months learning this new skill that I may never use. But I've learned enough that I can, that if the situation arises, uh, just as, as Chuck was talking about earlier too, you know, then uh, I, I can I can dig in further if I need to. So it's a recommended book. It's, it's a quick read. It, you can probably read it in two or three hours because there's not a lot of words. It's full of pictures so you can read it with your kids too, I guess. Awesome. Jillian, what are your picks? Uh, I'm going to go for the self-promotion this week. I am still on my quest of kind of taking off most of this month from client work, and I am pushing out a bunch of open source Terraform recipes for deploying various data science infrastructure. I have one out for an auto-scaling Kubernetes cluster, uh, Jupyter Hub. I'm getting Airflow out there. I got the, the EFS driver on AWS working with Kubernetes and it's all very much you just push a button and you deploy it and the idea is that I want to make data science infrastructure accessible to data science and especially the bioinformatics folks because they're the people that I like the most Uh, you know like really accessible to them in the way that I think that the software engineering world has really already done a very good job with that with libraries you know like uh, pandas tidyverse numpy dask all these cool libraries that we have out in the data science space I would like to bring that kind of feeling on over into the DevOps space and uh, really just get some good infrastructure recipes out there for the data science world at large to use so I picked a couple to start off with Jupyter Hub and RStudio because those are the ones that are like my most requested. Mm-hmm. Hopefully the HPC one will be out next week. So if you too want a Slurm cluster on AWS, you can have it and Airflow. And uh, yeah, we'll see where we're going from there. Nice. All right, I'm going to throw out a few uh, picks of my own. Quick reminder about the podcast bootcamp. I'm kind of nailing down the videos and stuff for that. And it's been fun to just walk through, hey, how do you get over imposter syndrome? How do you find things to talk about? How do you connect with your audience? How do you get your artwork done? What equipment should you buy? You know, all that stuff. It's just been really fun. So if you're looking to launch a podcast, Uh, It's a four-week program. You'll have a podcast up in four weeks. You will have, I guess the other thing that I should put out there is that I'm going to give you kind of a a worksheet for a script for the first five episodes so you know how to connect with your audience and kind of warm up and lead in the the show so people know what they're getting. And uh, yeah, anyway, it's going to be super fun. I'm looking forward to it. So anyway, there's that. And then... I've been training for this triathlon, and when I go out and run, I listen to books. So I'm going to throw out a couple of books uh, that I've been listening to. One is The Tribe of Millionaires. I don't know if I picked this before, uh, but it basically talks about the people you surround yourself with and talk about life with and things like that. It's it's awesome. It's, it's well worth it. It's a short read. I really enjoyed it. I also listened to How to Make Shit Happen by Sean Whalen. I try not to swear on the shows, but that's the name of the book. So... It was really good. It's an even shorter read. It's like an hour and a half listen on Audible. And he kind of walks through the four areas of life that he focuses on. Really, really good. Right now, I'm in the middle of a book called God and Money, and I'm not really digging it, to be honest. So <laughs> I guess I'll throw that out there as uh, it, it's it's 
how do I put it? So they, they're kind of trying to come at money, wealth, and generosity from a Christian standpoint. And I feel like they learned all the wrong lessons from the right books. So that that's kind of where that comes down. Um, I'm also listening to the Expanse series. Listen to them in the past. The last book is coming out next month or the month after. And so I thought, oh, I'll listen to them again because that's kind of what you have to do on some of these series. Otherwise, you're just like, wait, 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 what happened before? So anyway, I'm digging that, really enjoying that. And yeah, and then the last thing I'm going to pick is the system I'm using to put the course together and the landing page and everything. It's called Groove Funnels. Um, And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But it's kind of on the level of like a Kajabi in that it does all kinds of stuff. It does your mailing list. It does your shopping cart. It does your uh, course software. It does your landing pages and your funnels. Um, Anyway, I'm really digging it. The only thing that I can't use it for is podcast hosting. So I'm using fireside.fm for that. And then finally, if this sounds just a little different, we've recorded a couple of episodes on Riverside.fm, but I think this is the first episode where we've had everybody over here. And uh, yeah, so it probably sounds different. Hopefully it sounds a whole lot better because it does all the recording locally, puts us all on separate tracks and allows the editor to really make us shine. So I'm going to just shout out about both of those tools as well. I'll be walking through how to use them on the podcast bootcamp and that's at podcastbootcamp.io. All right, Alex, what are your picks? Okay. So I've got one that's non-technical and one that's technical. Perfect. So for the non-technical, I'm just going to say just watch anything from Norm MacDonald. He's a great comedian who died last week. Uh, I really liked him a lot. Um, you know, he had cancer for 10 years and didn't tell anyone and unfortunately he passed away but yeah so that would be my first recommendation just you know look up any stand-up by him for the technical one i'd say i'm just going to plug itnext.io it's where we do our uh tutorials mostly they're pretty great you know just publication based on top of medium um you know you can go there and read a lot of good technical stuff including where we put our tutorials one of which might be relevant is eight use cases for a mesh VPN with Kubernetes. So uh, maybe look that one up on IT next. So yeah, that's what I've got. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to encourage people to go check out Gravital and we'll wrap up here. Till next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.